Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to the show. It's the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, WCOM in uh, Carlboro and Chapel Hill. We thank them for allowing us to uh, air this bad boy. If you miss any part of the broadcast, you can make sure you go to our website, uh, the Bachelor News Radio Network.com. Back to the phones. He is a uh, a writer and author and, and uh, writes some very fascinating pieces that always seem to be right on time or um, hits the nail on on the uh, the door with with all of the articles and um, he just wrote an article um, called the Connecticut man who led a plot to overthrow Franklin Roosevelt and to talk about it he is Andy Piasek and Andy I appreciate you coming on sir Thanks for having me again. Absolutely. So I, I just, before we get into the article, I, when I read it, I said, my God, this is Donald Trump. And these are the people behind him. Like the, and, and one of the things I want you to, we'll get into the article, but one of the things you wrote about this plot against um, President Roosevelt um, was the fact that it seemed harmless and, were, you know, from the people who brought the plot to this uh, retired Marine, uh, General Smedley uh, Butler in Pennsylvania, he's retired, big Roosevelt supporter, is that these are not, they. this wasn't some kind of mob uh, mentality. These weren't thugs on the street. These were doctors and lawyers and politicians and people that run major corporations. And I think the point I got out of your article, not only because I never knew about this until then, but the point is that the misconception of some of these hate groups and some of these other uh, anti-Semitic and skinheads and everything else, is a, a lot of them are being supported by people that just live next door to you and me. They moan along just like we are. They're not just, I mean, sh- sure, you got a... a a section of people that might be uneducated or just thugs or whatever, but these are highly educated, well-to-do people. And it's it was a plot then in 1933 against Roosevelt, and I, I feel like that the, the, the whole type of the plot now, even though we saw the, the idiot storm uh, the, the Capitol on January 6th, there are a lot of backers and bank <laughs> behind some of these groups. That's absolutely right. It was true then, and it's true now, 90 years later. I think uh, that's one of the things that kind of gets erased out of the picture when the focus is on, you know, these this kind of crazy guy with an animal mask on his face and all that kind of stuff. Um, the best that I've seen in terms of somebody trying to do a democratic demographic research is that the three biggest groups represented in uh, that coup attempt last month were real estate agents, law enforcement, and people from uh, small business owners. So while there certainly are plenty of working class and kind of even more down the economic scale who support a lot of these efforts, both in this case and in the case that I wrote about uh, from 90 years ago, you had, like you said, 
very, very powerful, wealthy people who were contributing massive amounts of money to these efforts. And then overwhelmingly, I would say they were the people participating were like what you described, professionals, people of above average means. Uh, and that's important to point out. And in the article you talk about, and he had to be from Connecticut, <laughs> by the way. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> the the the, right. the point, the villain, if you will, of your article, uh, you know, takes this this trip um, to Pennsylvania to talk with this retired uh, general, um, and the general, who's a Roosevelt fan, takes this meeting because the meeting, his understanding is what they presented to him was about the American Legion and you know, getting uh, getting uh, that going. But talk about the article, how it kind of started, and and um, the fact that you know McGuire, the, the, you know, stood up, and and had he not stood up, and others stood up, hey, we could have seen Abe Lincoln all over again, and the assassination or or some kind of attempt on Roosevelt. Well, the origin of the article is uh, I'm a Connecticut native, and I'm back living here in Bridgeport where I grew up um, after many years of living in New York. And I like to write about Connecticut history for ConnecticutHistory.org. And this was a natural to me precisely because of what you said earlier. The par there are certain unmissable parallels between what we've kind of gone through not just last month, but the last four years with the development of these white nationalist and almost fascist-like forces and what happened um, in the article in 1930, that I just talked about in 1933. So um, first, I think it's important to have a little background because, again, there are some parallels between what was the situation in the United States in the early 1930s and what we see today. As I'm sure all of your listeners know, the stock market uh, crashed in the fall of 1929. And what began was probably the worst depression or economic downturn in the history of the country. That's why it's been known ever since then as the Great Depression, uh, to distinguish it from all the other many recessions and depressions that we've had. That was sort of the grand salami of them all. So during this period, um, Republican Herbert Hoover is the president. He continues with a kind of uh, pro-business, non-governmental action approach that the Republicans then and now were well known for. Meanwhile, you know, people around the country um, are unemployed, they're starving, poverty is rampant. We have the creation of hundreds of uh, homeless encampments that sarcastically became known as Hoovervilles, named after the president. And among working class people especially, there was a growing influence of socialist and communist and anarchist ideas about, okay, you know, look at what's happened as a result of the economy that we're living under. It's totally fallen apart. There's no sign that it's going to improve. You have billionaires who have come through the stock market crash better than they were before in many cases. While Meanwhile, you have people who don't even have enough money or enough food in the refrigerator to put a meal on the table. On the other hand, you have, and this has been really kind of erased, I think, from history uh, to a large extent, 
prominent figures in both the political world and in the business world who are very much admiring what is happening under fascists in Italy with Mussolini, who came to power in the early 20s, and Adolf Hitler, who had been rising slowly to power and had finally seized power in January of 1933, just before these events that we're going to be talking about took place. And people like Henry Ford, very, very staunch admirer of Hitler, very much uh, appealed, uh, very much drawn to the idea of we need order, we need to keep all this riffraff in line, we can't have these demonstrations, we can't have strikes, we can't have workers organizing for more representation or higher wages or any of that stuff. And others, uh, members of the DuPont family, it's not really well known as much today, but the DuPont company and the new DuPont family were among the largest corporations and the wealthiest individuals in the world uh, back in the 1930s. And also people from the political world, as I mentioned, um, were alarmed by the possibility that socialist and working class ideas could become stronger and did what they could um, in order to prevent that from happening, which is what really leads into this whole uh, chain of events with the attempted coup. And when you, you look at, uh, you mentioned Italy and, and Germany, I, I think you'd mentioned that uh, McGuire uh, went over there to study fascism um, and see how they, they do it and brought back the ideas. And just astonishing, like you said, these these wealthy people and these corporations, you can put, you know, a parallel with these companies now. I mean, you, you mentioned some. I mean, let's not forget Thomas Lamont, who you know is the uh, I believe the great the grandfather, a great grandfather uh, of of our former governor, um, current governor, 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 governor. I mean, yeah. yep, Thomas Lamont. Thomas yeah. Lamont, and yeah. you know you you've had people you you mentioned in there, uh, J P Morgan, uh, John Davis, all these all these great powerful men by the way um yes. and it's just it's it's really astonishing um and when i look at and i hear when you mention how you know mcguire went to italy to study mussolini and 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 hitler and all of those things and how to defeat it um we have we just had a former president who admired those people as well um, yeah. And there's and there's people seventy plus million. I wouldn't say all, but some in that group not only feel that way. There's a, a healthy bunch of them that can support that um, type of government, um, Andy. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, I mean, I think the last thing that we should do is think that because now the Trump clan is out of the White House, that somehow you know we're out of the out of the woods, so to speak. These organizations are entrenched. There are lots of people who, they don't necessarily care that much about Trump. Some do, some don't, but they supported what he did, and they're going to keep on plugging away with whatever their different versions of white nationalism or fascism or uh, what they claim to be a return to the old days, whatever. Whatever all this mixture of ideologies are, it's still out there and it's still very strong, and the last thing in the world is that we should let our guard down. 
Now, along that line, <clears throat> this individual who you've mentioned a few times, Gerald Maguire, was uh, a leader in the American Legion. And it's important to talk a little bit. American Legion, again, is another kind of organization that's not as visible now as it was 80, 90 years ago. But it was a huge organization. It was started right after the First World War. A very reactionary, kind of white nationalist, anti-Semitic type of organization. It was originally notorious for breaking strikes. Um, they would come around whenever workers were on strike and oftentimes end up attacking the uh, strikers or finding where they lived and coming around to their homes and all that kind of stuff. They probably became more better known in the late 1940s and early 1950s during the early stages of the Cold War when they would go around, say, if a movie by a left-wing or an accused left-wing movie star like Charlie Chaplin was playing in a movie theater, they would pick it and they would discourage people from attending and all that kind of stuff. But they also were prone to acts of violence during that time period, and probably the most notorious that many of your listeners probably know about was an outdoor concert in 1949 that took place not too far away from where I am right now in Peekskill, New York, where a concert by Paul Robeson, uh, the concert goers and Root were viciously attacked, and the uh, attack was organized mostly by the American Legion. You can just picture um, a lot of blacks and Jews and left-wing union members traveling from New York City and other places, and now they're traveling to this outdoor field in a small town on a small winding road so they were ambushed you know the the american legion people knew where the concert was going to be they stopped the buses obstructed the uh, you know by pulling vehicles in front of the road and broke windows pulled people off the buses and beat the heck out of them and the concert ended up being canceled because no very few people could get through and all this violence was happening there was a second attempt that was made, and it was successful. But the point is just this is a little bit of a background as to what the American Legion was at that time, and for all I know may still be and may still be a part of some of this stuff that we've seen like last month in Washington. So this guy, Gerald McGuire, is a Connecticut commander of the American Legion. He And um, I don't know if you want to get into the whole story now or if we want to get uh, just into other pieces of it first, but... He's no, kind of the yeah. He he's kind of the point man. He's been a he's a World War One veteran. He goes to work on Wall Street. He's living in Connecticut. Uh, in his job on Wall Street, he meets and becomes friends to some degree with some of the wealthiest and most powerful people in the country. And as uh, Roosevelt runs for president in 1932 and eventually wins, uh, more and more of these people are becoming alarmed because the policies that he's proposing, which are really very much different from Hoover and which ultimately become what's known as the New Deal, they're completely freaked out by this. They don't want to have uh, in higher income taxes on rich people. They don't want to have... Um, you know, remember, it, even the bottom years of the Depression, there's no such thing as unemployment benefits. There's no such thing as Social Security. So if you're an elderly person and somehow your bank account has shriveled up, uh, you're kind of out there without any income, 
uh, having to try to survive maybe on the good graces of your family or whatever. If you're unemployed, pretty much the same thing. Uh, you, uh, you don't have any kind of government assistance to tie you over until you get another job, if you're lucky enough to get another job. So, um, you know, uh, wheels are set in motion, and this, and this guy, McGuire, from the American Legion, goes to visit uh, the other key player in this whole story, who you mentioned, retired Marine Corps General Smedley Butler, <clears throat> who also happens to be a member of the American Legion, uh, for reasons I'm not really clear. I guess maybe there was some kind of small liberal group within it, because he's definitely a liberal. He's a supporter of Roosevelt. He's seen terrible things done by the U.S. military in his many years uh, leading invasions and other adventures in Central America and Haiti and other parts of the world, to the point where he's really turned against U.S. foreign policy. Uh, a few years after this whole series of events, he'll write a book that becomes quite famous called War is a Racket. And basically what he described himself as a general in the Marine Corps was like a hitman for big business. You know, if uh, uh, the United Fruit Company or Anaconda Copper got in trouble with some revolutionaries or peasants uh, down in El Salvador or somewhere, they'd call in the Marines, send them down there, and, you know, crush any possibility of people changing their societies in some kind of a more democratic direction. But, um, you know, uh, while McGuire is sort of the point man, like you mentioned, and I've mentioned some of the figures involved, he, according to all the accounts that have come out, had uh, tremendous backing from some of these wealthy individuals that we've talked about, and they were ready to make both massive amounts of money available and... Because the DuPont company had recently purchased a massive uh, arms manufacturing factory right here in Bridgeport, where I am, uh, much of which the building still stands, even though the business has long been gone, uh, they were prepared to provide hundreds of thousands or whatever number of American Legion members they could recruit to participate in this plot with weapons. And then just keep in mind... Um, the vast majority of American Legion members were battle-experienced veterans, so they were certainly much more capable of manning uh, any kind of weaponry than your average citizen would have been. So it really was a very ominous potential situation with all this. And, you know, uh, do you <laughs> talk about the backing that he had. We, I forgot to mention Prescott Bush. And everybody knows that last name. His grandson and and son served as president. Uh, that that's an enormous just not just the money, the power, like the influence. These are like yeah. big weight people that are trying to do, uh, uh, trying to overthrow again. Here we are, 2020, um, overthrow the government. Andy, what I need to do is do. We're going to do a part two on this. I'm going to get with you on. Uh, a date where we can come back hopefully uh, sooner than later so I could do a part thing. Folks, it's really great reading. And uh, before you go, I need you to let people know how they can find your work, but specifically this article because, like I said, it's it's a moment in time. Like, you, you're right. It's, Trump is not the only one, 
But we just saw something like this, a plot um, that took place last year that was taking place or almost took place in 1933 if it wasn't for the courage of a few. So yeah, let people right. know uh, where they can um, get that information. Well, I really highly re recommend uh, ConnecticutHistory.org. I think if you enter my name somewhere in there, you'll bring up a whole series of a couple dozen articles that I've written, including the one that we've been talking about. So that's the best way to access it. It's probably available at other websites as well, but that's that's one. And, of course, you can be reached at AnniePiasic at Yahoo.com. This article, if it's okay with you, uh, will uh, go on our, our site and definitely... I want people to get their information so they can see all the other stuff. I mean, really, folks, I'm not uh, exaggerating. It's as well-written, as always, with Andy. Uh, the Connecticut man who led a plot to overthrow Franklin Roosevelt. And like I said, Andy, we're both from Connecticut. He had to be from Connecticut. Why couldn't he be from California or somewhere? He had to be from Well, actually, <laughs> if it makes it any better, he was born in Rhode Island, and then he settled in Connecticut. Okay. That's a little bit better. All right. So we'll <laughs> cut him. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also a lot of good stuff about her courageous and uh, beautiful people from Connecticut that I've written about and others have written about on the website. So um, people should, you know, spend an hour, maybe whatever you can on the site because there's lots of good stuff there. I believe it. Andy, God bless. I appreciate you. I'll be in touch so we can get you to do part two, okay? Thanks for having me, L.A. Welcome back to the show, the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network and uh, our good friends at WCOM, of course, WCOM, LP, Chapel Hill, and Carborough. If you miss any part of our broadcast, you go to our website, uh, thebachelornewsradionetwork.com. I want to bring in my guest. He is the men's basketball coach at St. Augustine College. Of course, they're not flying at this point. The Falcons, they're uh, grounded due to, unfortunately, COVID-19. Uh, he is Marcus Johnson. And Coach Johnson, it's always a pleasure to have you on, sir. Uh, thank you, uh, L.A., for having me on. I really appreciate this. I really enjoy it. Hey, coach, where were you when you got the word, well, let's backtrack, when you found out how bad COVID was going to be and maybe started hearing some rumors about cancellations and then they just canceled it all. I know when I I got to, I just finished covering the CIAA. It was a week after the MEAC was coming up. I went all the way to uh, Norfolk, got to the arena, and they canceled it. Everything. NCAA <laughs> shut everything down. Needless to say, I was not a happy camper. But where were you when everything started taking place? Uh, actually, I was out recruiting uh, when I got the the word as far as when things uh, was going to shut down um, last year, and it was just it was just amazing just watching how things. It was just a domino effect on the way the sports world was just uh, just got shut down. So I was out recruiting, and then next thing I know, the the next day, the event was shut down. So <laughs> I had to stay around for a day, you know, and doing, thinking I was going to see some basketball, but basketball was canceled. So I ended up coming back home, and you know, and, and then, you know, we, we saw how everything was then. It had to be, I mean, a, a stunner to say the least. Um, and, and let me just ask this uh, question personally. Um, I, I won't get into 
you know, the commissioner and the, the you know, the uh, the conference did the the right thing. But what was your first reaction when it happened? Like, oh, you know, what are we going to do? Or, um, you know, based on what we knew at the time, um, this was a smart decision. What was what was your first thoughts? Uh, my first thoughts were the the uh, the well being of the players, um, because uh, mentally I knew they were already fragile from not having a traditional preseason. Um, so that was my immediate thought was the players. How can I get them under control mentally to understand that you know this is probably for the best interest uh, for the welfare, you know, healthy for our players, uh, just to get them on the on the same page and understand that you know the season. Even though we're not having a season this year, you know, make sure you can come back and we can get things going and we are going to do some type of, you know, workouts in the spring. But, you know, mainly just talking with them to let them understand that, you know, this is just, I know it's a bump in the road now. It seems like a mountain, but it's just a small piece of life that we have to, what we call adjust and adapt. Not only pivot, but we have to adjust and adapt. This is just one of the things that we just had to do as far as adapting. If you're just joining us, of course, we're talking with Marcus Johnson. He is the uh, men's basketball coach at uh, uh, St. Augustine's uh, University Falcons um, and the whole entire CIAA uh, conference and, of course, uh, uh, others have canceled all uh, basketball of this season. And, and, and Coach, I, I'm glad you said that um, because I've had – I won't get into uh, names and universities and things, but I have, I've had some people on. And I've read and uh, know of some others who decided that they were going to play. And unfortunately, it doesn't make a difference in terms of, you know, COVID, seasonal color. Um, but I think it it's, could be potentially dangerous if you're uh, HBCU and you put these kids out there and they're on campus and everything else, and God forbid something happens, then then it's really a mess. That, that is that is true. Um, but but one thing I've, I've, I've been talking with other coaches and you know just looking at the the situation, the only way to really not contract it or stop it is you have to stay in your, your house and go from your living room to your bedroom to the bathroom <laughs> right. to the kitchen. <laughs> you know, so you know every, every, anytime you leave the house, there there is a risk of you possibly getting exposed. Uh, but I think I commend my my guys that I think they. They did a good job of handling uh, the safety measures that we put in place for them um, at the time. And we were able to get some work in, some practices in. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, you know, the way things were as far as with the conference, as far as with the school situation, um, I think it was just too much to bear and too much uh, risk uh, that they didn't want to you know, really put us out there like that. If you're joining us, we're talking with uh, Marcus Johnson, uh uh, six seasons, I believe, under his belt at uh, St. Augustine College and um, I mean University, and um, known for great recruiting, and, and certainly known for guys who can light it up. Uh, certainly, uh, if you look at um, the three-point shooters and Tyree Gathright and, and guys like that, um, it, you know, one of the things too, I talk with other uh, coaches we've had on. We have Robert Jones, I'm sure you know him, Norfolk State, some others on. And it was really hard, and I, I know it has to be. If you had seniors that didn't get, not only didn't get a chance to finish their senior year, 
But in in the in the best, I'm sorry, the best basketball men and women's basketball tournament on the planet, and that's the CIAA tournament. They didn't get to do that. Did you have um, seniors, a, a bunch of them, uh, not knowing your complete roster? Um, and if so, how did they handle it? How did you handle it with them? Um, well, the one way I handled it is like we, I always work with them on the middle side of the game and not only just athleticism. So we, we, I sat them down and we talked about it because you know, the one thing I will commend the NCAA on is that they did allow players the opportunity to come back next year. So they all see that as a good opportunity as far as getting the year older, mature, not only in the classroom, I mean, not only in the weight room and in the, in the, on the court, but also in the classroom, and being able to, you know, concentrate on your schoolwork and, and just work on your uh, game and your skills to try to get better for next year. And that's the main thing I keep trying to tell them is that this, this year is going to pass by and we're going to get to next year. We just have to be ready when that year comes and don't waste this time, you know, while in despair because at the end of the day, nobody really gives cares about your feelings. So you got to, you know, put your bootstraps on and let's get to work and let's, you know, be prepared so when the time comes next year in August, we're ready to go. Yeah, that amen to that, and it, you know, no, and and you know, even with some, I uh, you know, Miak and 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 uh, well, the SWAC definitely, and some other schools playing, uh, and and we we'll talk with the coaches, even the ones that are playing. Like, I mean, you don't know if the game's canceled. You can't really practice. Um, it, it's just so many restrictions. If you were playing, how would you handle that? How how does that even look in the midst of COVID nineteen? I tell you, like that was that's a that's a tough one to ask because you know with it's, it's hard. It, it would be hard because we have our students on campus, so we're not able to put our players in a so-called bubble. Uh, the main thing that we just kept, uh, you know, pounding in their head was just stay safe, wear your mask, wash your hands, keep your circle tight, um, and and don't try to do anything extra. And that, that's a tough thing for a kid to deal with, a young kid, a young a young adult. But at the same time, if we want to get this season moving and with no interruptions, that was, that's what we're going to have to do. And it was good, it was tough. I mean, we had to deal with it with when we were practicing. Um, luckily, a week or two, we were able to be in a you know little bubble. But before that, you know, guys uh, had to just you know really stay in their rooms, go to the gym, stay in your rooms, go to the gym. Um, and, and that was, uh, and it was an adjustment. It was an adjustment. But I think, I think as far as we, you know, we have to give these kids uh, credit that, you know, they were able to adjust. They were able to adapt. Um, and I got to you, I think that they did a great job of doing that. How has it been for you personally? Um, you know, again, it's, some people have had, you know, um, unfortunately, uh, we pray for them that lost people uh, due to this. But how has it been for you personally and your, and your family? Uh, it's, it's been an, it's, uh, I keep going back to these words. It's been an adjustment. Um, a lot of people don't realize I had COVID back in July, uh, for about two and a half weeks, which was, uh, it, it was tough. I've had family members that has had it. Um, but one thing I'll be able to do is, you know, I have a son that plays high school basketball. Actually, I just left his game, um, to come out here to, to talk with you is that that's what I do a lot now is I spend a lot more time with him, um, because, I, you know, normally I'm practicing at this time. 
but now I'm able to go see him a little more and, and see what he's doing. And also I'm able to get into uh, some high schools and some practices of, of schools where I, you know, typically sometimes it's been tough to, to get over. Uh, so that's, that's one thing I've been able to do, you know, and just looking at it. You know, I'm trying to turn the negative to a positive and, and get out and just uh, see as much basketball as I can um, and put my eyes on kids and, and spend as much time with my son as I can you know, while he's uh, at his, uh, in his teenage years. Yeah, and, you know, being from Nightdale and here and, you know, knowing kids at Central and Shaw, you coach there and stuff, I'm sure mm-hmm. it, it, it allows you to be able to have some some connections. And I, I'm not going to hold you uh, longer. And I know with, with, with my kids, uh, you know, younger than, a little bit younger than yours, I mean, it, I mean we bonded because of this. So it's, it's, you know, some, <laughs> it's good. You know, my, my new name is Daddy, though, but, I mean, other than that, <laughs> you know, but other than that. Right. But what about the kids? Um, how how are your players doing? Uh, are they coming to you with concerns or any sicknesses or and or um, uh, are they receiving any sort of uh, counseling to get through this? Because it's a mental thing to be secluded and indoors all the time. It's got to be stressful. It, it definitely is, and... Um and actually, early on in the season, um, back in first semester, back in I think it was in October, November, I did bring in a psychologist to talk with them. Um, and we were doing that probably once a uh, once a month. We were bringing the psychologist, and I'm gonna get back to that. We haven't done it this uh, semester yet because kids just got back on campus last week, so we're going to do that more to just bring a counselor in to talk with them um, because it is tough. I mean, I, I, I it's, it's, it has it has it has affected me as well mentally uh so i know it's affecting them uh, because you know i got told somebody yesterday i told my class this is the first time in 38 years i haven't had a basket i haven't been able to go to a basketball practice and actually participate so it's an adjustment for me it's a huge adjustment so i definitely understand their pain um but they're able to talk and they know they can come to my office and we talk about it at times but like i tell them all the time is that you know the lord will not give them anything put anything on them that they can't bear uh, so therefore, this too shall pass, and we're going to get through this, and and we're going to get through this together, and you know when we do get through this, we're going to you know we're going to be even better for this. Yeah, and you know the Lord doesn't make any mistakes, so you're right. You can come mm-hmm. out on the other side better. Final question yeah. for you: um, I know you said you're probably going to do some stuff in the spring. Is there a solid game plan or? Again, with COVID, you just don't know at this point. You you have sort of a little bit direction uh, moving forward. Yes, our, our game plan right now was to really treat it just like our uh, like a regular postseason. Um, so uh, we're going to get in the weight room. We're going to get some skill development in, and we, we're going to go for about six to eight weeks. Um, and, and we're going to hit it hard to 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 develop and to get better. And I got to we're not going to waste this these months. Um, and wallow in despair because we're not playing. We want to get better, and, and so we can come back next year even stronger, so we can able to compete for a championship. He's had success at uh, St. Augustine University in six years. Of course, uh, uh, coached in uh, the CBL and and done well there. Marcus Johnson, I appreciate you, uh-huh. sir. You be well, be safe. God bless you and your family. We'll talk with you soon, sir. Same to you, LA, and I appreciate it. Thank you.
Welcome back to the show. We thank you for joining us on the Bastard News Radio Show on the Bastard News Radio Network and WCOM and uh, Carborough and Chapel Hill. 646-929-0130, the number to get in touch with us, uh, or you can hit us up in the chat room or on Facebook at Pad Nation or Pad Nation uh, 2 on Twitter, LA Bachelor Instagram, and of course, um, you can hit us up as well on TuneIn.com and, and iTunes. And if you miss any part of the broadcast, make sure you go to our website, the Bass News Radio Network dot com to get your fix of our broadcast. Want to bring in my guest? He is um, an author, and he's a really uh, an author that I'm I'm, I'm glad to have on uh, in a topic that's near and dear to me. Um, he wrote a book entitled A Convict's Perspective. Uh, uh, critiquing peniology and, and inmate rehabilitation. He is Tyrone Baker, and, and Mr. Baker, is always good to have you on, sir. We talked before. Thanks for coming on the show this hey. evening, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I want to get a thought on, first, the um, inspiration behind the book, and once you had the inspiration, you had the vision how did you go about uh, writing the book? Oh, that's actually an interesting story. My inspiration was, uh, it stemmed from my reading habits. You know, I was a just ferocious reader when I was incarcerated. I served 14 years. So uh, while I was locked up, I started reading literature and just penology and criminal justice and, you know, just the system in general. So I started realizing how um, rare it was to hear the perspective of someone who had empirical information, someone who had actually lived through these academics were writing about. In my mind, I said, you know what? I want to actually contribute to that space. I want to be that voice. I want to be that missing that missing link, you know, that, that person that could provide that empirical information to, you know, these architects of criminological theory. So I started thinking like, hey, maybe I should start writing some essays, start writing some articles. So I did. I just, as a habit, you know, I would read a criminological text and I would say, you know what? here's something interesting, or here's something that I disagree with, or here's something that I question the accuracy of, and I would write it out in essay form. You know, so I did that a few times, and uh, I started noticing that my essays were, were, were improving in quality, and um, I say my, my, the guy that wrote a forward in my book, he was like, you know what, um, how about you take all of your essays, blend them together, and, you know, we can see if you can turn it into a book, because that would be an interesting read, you know, blend all of these, you know, I guess, insightful ideas, you know, into one into one piece. So I say, you know what, that's actually a good idea. So I went from there. I, I actually wrote the entire book, you know, on by hand. Um, it took me a while because uh, some of the things that I discuss in the book, um, let's just say that, that I can see how people in prison systems, people in prison administrations would not approve of some of the some of the ways in which I criticize the system. So at times, you know, I've went through situations where my manuscript was taken from me, so I would have to start over, or pieces of my manuscript were destroyed during during a search, during a, a cell search or a locker search, and I would have to, you know, go back and fill those in, and so I kind of learned how to write it in secrecy a little bit, and you know, I would send pieces of my home, like little snippets of it home to my mom piece by piece, and my mom transcribed it for me, and and my mom was a really big help in all of this, so. 
the, actually the inspiration came from, you know, the missing voice that I noticed in criminological literature. But, you know, the actual mechanics is cheating or something. It really, really, my mom. You know, I, I can't explain how impactful she was to my not only my development or, you know, my mental well-being, but just in my life in general, especially while I was incarcerated. You know, and to, to all of your listeners, I hope that they, if they know someone who is just involved, hopefully they can be as supportive of their loved one as my mom was. You know, you said a couple of things in terms of support. You also said something about um, the criticism that comes with what you said and and for me tyrone i'm not gonna call it if i can call you tyrone i'm not gonna call it a criminal justice system because there is no justice for people that look like you and i the brothers right so um so that i'm gonna call it criminal reform or criminal hope or something like that but it won't be justice because there's no justice going on but with you being in there 14 years tyrone and and having similar experiences, you know, when you 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 look at that time and and not necessarily isolation, you didn't. I don't know all your, you know, your the, the reasons why you're there, but certainly um, having time on your hands, let's say, right? You can't go anywhere. You gotta um, get up when they tell you to get up and sleep when they tell you to sleep and eat and all that kind of things. Um, did you think, based on that, based on your crime, based on the experiences and and your own redemption, that that also led to you writing the book? I mean, I know you read, and I, I tell my kids all the time, reading is going to make you smart. The more you read, the more you're going to advance yourself anyway. So was there any redemption? Was there any... Thing that you thought about in in those times, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, just not just about the system, but just man, when I get out, I have to make a difference. I've experienced this fourteen freaking years of my life is gone. I can't get back. What what were you thinking then? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Now, um, it's funny that you mentioned that. It's, it's very rare that I shared this, but uh, actually, in my mind, you know, I, I, like you said, I had a lot of time to reflect man, and think. You know, so I actually thought about some of my past misdeeds, you know, as a kid, you know, I was in, I was a teenager when I got incarcerated. So I, I got to thinking about a lot of the mistakes I made. And of course, you know, regrets can eat away at you, you know? So I started thinking like, Hey, maybe there's some kind of way I can maybe contribute to the fight against the carceral state. Maybe there's some kind of way I can add value to the system and the type of criminality that I partook in. You know, maybe I can try to, you know, at least improve by doing my part as a writer. Maybe I could try to improve the way in which this country handles, uh, you know, misdeeds and, and miscreants and, and lawlessness. You know, maybe I can actually generate some high-quality literature that will help me accomplish that goal, you know. So I, I figured, like, being that I made some mistakes and being that I messed up, I felt like, you know, maybe there was a way I could actually redeem or, 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 or I don't say redeem myself because, you know, it's, you can't undo what I did, but, I think that I wanted to be a positive force. You know what I mean? I wanted to be. But you paid you know your. What? But you paid your debt, though. You you don't have to. Yeah. I mean, make up for. But you paid your debt, though. I mean, let's be yeah, clear yeah. about that. Of course, of course, and that's just, you know I, that's how I was thinking at the time. You know, I really was thinking that I, that was that was my way. That was that was a part of me was leaning in that direction. I've grown a lot since then. You know, I was um I was in my twenties when I wrote the book. You know, 
and I'm in my mid thirties now. So I wrote a probably wow. It got published in 2014, but I wrote it in 2013. You know, so it's actually uh, I was I've grown a lot since then, but it's it's definitely that the redemptive part play uh, it didn't have a role. You know. It's 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 fascinating uh, uh, that you 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 mentioned that. Uh, let's talk about um, uh, well, part of me connecting with you is the program that you're donating um, your uh, uh, proceeds from your book uh, this month too is that the Straight Talk uh, support group that has an event coming up next month and. Um, their program, you know, uh, really deals with helping incarcerated uh, um, men, um, black men, and that's just the numbers, um, you know, getting back on their feet, having not only the physical attributes, but the mental uh, stamina to understand and, and, and have the hope that you will succeed. You won't be going back to prison and being incarcerated, yeah. jail, whatever the case may be. So uh, how has that um, inspired you to do what you do? Um, and, and are you doing any mentorship with that particular program? Well, yeah, yeah. Straight Talk Support Group is, uh, like you said, it's, a, it's basically a post-incarceration service provider. And uh, their mission really uh, resonated with me. As people know, you know, I mean, Transitioning from prison to society is a it's a it's an it's an ordeal, you know. Prison psychologically impacts people. You know, it actually affects the way in which people think. Straight Talk Support Group recognizes that and wants to stand in that gap and kind of help people, you know, go through that transition and be better citizens. And they're holding a fundraiser event, you know. And I really hope that your listeners support them, man, because they they're doing great work. But the work that they do, um, it actually is not only inspirational. It's kind of it, it's it's kind of like a civic duty in a sense, you know, here are, here's a group of people who are blessed, you know, with the gift of caring and blessed to be able to provide the service they provide. They're like, you know what, because we've been given these gifts, we want to return them to our community and make our community a better place. Straight Talk Support Group approaches the problem of transitioning out of prison back into free society with that paradigm, you know, and that right there, I mean, it just, it really just, it's an amazing organization, man, which is why I felt compelled to get involved with what they do. So every book, that I sell. My book is on Amazon, and you can also get to it. There's a link in my Facebook bio at Tyrone Baker. You know, if you click on the link in my bio, it'll take you. And every book that I sell in the month of February and in the month of March, I'm going to donate all of the profits from the book sale to Straight Talk Support Group to help them further their cause. And, and they want to add a mental health function, a mental health service to, to one of the many services they already do, including, you know, GED training, job training, employment training, and housing, and food assistance, you know. So, I want to support them by by doing everything I can. You know, Tyrone, I, I want people to understand not only what you're doing, and and it's not just because you're on a program and I'm patting you on the back for doing what you're doing and giving your proceeds. Okay, this is a book, right? You're just um, you're a young man, far younger than I am, um, and you're still, you know, getting your your feet on solid ground from the conversations we've had in the interviews. So I, I want people to understand that you're doing this. These, this is stuff that's, you know, um, resources that's coming out of your pocket. But And I want you to, to stress why it's so important. In particular, when you look at 
um, people coming out. Um, society is so unforgiving, Tyrone, as you know. You know, oh, you know, oh, he he's an ex-con, you know. Don't know what happened. You don't know if you were too young or too stupid or too something. Something happened, and it just happened. You might have just been a criminal, but but you were young, and something just happened. But people don't know, but they just see, oh, he's got a record, right? I'm yeah. not even talking about business, Tyrone. I'm talking about people, just relationships, family members, because, you know, they do, they could be the worst. I, I, I God bless your mother. <laughs> You know, but but you know how family is. You know, I told him, I told him not to do, you know, and that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So talk about that because it, I think it's really important that society looks at people with a criminal record, whether it be DUI or armed robbery or or just some, you know, you just you got into a fight and some whatever, whatever the, the huh. case may be. And you paid your debt. You're 14 years by you. You paid 14 freaking years. You can't get back. You paid your debt. And then they still look at you as the scum of the earth in some cases. Talk about that. And that's why you're kind of giving back uh, in your manner. Yeah, yeah. That, that's actually an interesting point. You know, society can be unforgiving in many ways, especially socially. You know, and um, I think that we are uh, entering a new, I guess, social error in a sense. I think people are becoming more, um, I guess, socially progressive in many ways, even if they aren't doing so politically, you know, or, or economically. They are becoming socially progressive, you know, as a society. So I think that um, in addition to this country being founded on some, some strong Christian principles, allegedly, <laughs> you know, I think that most people right. view themselves as Christians, and the idea of forgiveness is, is baked deeply into, you know, the religion of Christianity. So I think that most people who, um, I guess, view themselves that way, hopefully they feel inclined to honor every aspect of that, of that religion and, and be as forgiving as, as their high power would like for them to be. You know, I would, I would hope that the country would go in that direction, you know, but honestly, to, to be all the way honest, man, I, I feel like um, racism and classism is also, like, ingrained into the fabric of America. You know, so yes, sir. despite how much I'm, despite how much I might want people to adopt this lofty, this um, somewhat idyllic, you know, notion of forgiveness and apply it to their lives, despite how much I may want that, the the fact of the matter is, like, you know, um, we can't just, um, how can I say, we can't just ignore the roots of this country and what has happened throughout the history of this country and what is continuously happening now. You know, so I think that people who are are unforgiving right now, I'm I'm to a point now where I really think, like, you know what. Instead of trying to change these people, how about, you know, we get some more progressive-minded people in positions of power so, you know, the people who have that viewpoint aren't as influential. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really to that point. I'm really to the point where if you want to change the power structure, you've got to become the power structure. So I'm, I'm really thinking mm. that the people that I feel like can lead the country in the best direction should focus on becoming the power structure instead of trying to cater into the one that already exists. You know, so it's, it's actually hey, a multifaceted answer to that question. Right, and it, I guess it, to to your point, it's almost like you can't save everybody. If you you either in or you're not in. Like we got to keep it moving. Like this movement yeah. is moving, and and I believe too, Tyrone, that you got to choose your sides. Like what you're gonna be on the side of righteousness yeah. and 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 morality, or you're gonna be on the side you know that has these um, these uh, uh, situations where you know, you have your ulterior motives. Um, if you're just joining us, we're talking with Tyrone Baker, a great book. I hope to to get in my hands pretty soon, and we'll talk about that. 
Um, and Tyrone, you talk about it's a collegiate um, level um, of literally a literally critique of North Carolina, uh, North Carolina prison system, but it's not in a critical way. It's in an educational way. It's yeah, a way it's that you need to right an informative way. But 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 speak to that part, Tyrone, because sometimes when we inform, like Black History Month, which should be every day of the week, in my opinion, um, that when we inform, people get offended. So when you point out these things, these atrocities, these um, we know that black and brown, but it's specifically African Americans. You know, are, are disproportionately in, incarcerated than their white and other counterparts. Um, and then when I hear um, white folks say, "Well, you know, I mean, that's because black people commit more crimes," that's not true at all. Black people, if you live in a certain neighborhood, you're gonna if you're a criminal, you're gonna most criminals ain't gonna go. If you live in Durham, most criminals ain't. I mean, rarely are going to go to Chapel Hill or Raleigh or Fayetteville or whatever to commit a crime. You're going to commit the crime right there in that, that neighborhood. So these numbers that are inflated, um, that's what they are. So when you hear people saying, you know, you know, blacks commit more crimes, of course they're going to be more incarcerated. That's what people, black people and others of other races and ethnic groups uh, will push or their agenda, whether it be races or anything. But my point to you, and I don't mean to be long-winded, is that part of the education that you're trying to do sometimes offends people. So how do you get around that? When you tell the truth and give them the facts, and they call you the N-word or tell you you're just a con, convict or whatever the case may be, how do you get around stuff like that? Yeah, and that's actually an obstacle that I actually encountered early you know, in the beginning of my writing, I guess, journey, you know, and with my essays, I, I encountered that energy before, you know, and um, unfortunately, uh, it just, it, it didn't, it, I mean, well, fortunately, it didn't take root in me, it didn't discourage me, you know, how I deal with that is, you know, I actually like making a, a, a logical argument, you know, I like appealing to people's logic, and, and I'm good with working with people, and so when I make those arguments, I want to appeal to, to the most logical side of, you know, the person that's actually spewing that argument, you know. So I do think that um, a lot of people, unfortunately, are narrow-minded in a sense, and they kind of view it as, yeah, you're a criminal, so why should I listen to anything you have to say? You know, and, I mean, that's, that's their, their views. They're entitled to have their views. But one thing I can say is, um, you know what, it's hard to ignore logic and numbers at times, you know. And my book is, like I said, it's a collegiate-level text. It was written for academia, so I was thinking, like, hey, how about I use logic and reason throughout my book and hope that it appeals outside of academia, despite the fact that academia is my intended audience, you know? So I was thinking, is that that narrative, I mean, that, um, I guess, paradigm unfortunately exists, but I really, really hope that it's on the verge of dying out. <laughs> you know, I really do. I really don't yeah. like that you know, that way of thinking and that way of perceiving because it's actually rooted in the same thing the system is rooted in, and that's slavery. Like, at one point in time, you know, uh, well, I don't want to, you know, jump all the way back. In the oh, history, go and preach, that, go and preach. Yeah, there are certain ideas and certain narratives that have historical roots. You know, um, I, I remember talking to an old guy when I was incarcerated once, he's much older than I am. And uh, I believe I was probably 21, 22, and he was in his early 70s, so he, was, he, he has my age on him. So, 
in talking to him, he was like, uh, he was a fair-skinned individual. He, he, I guess his, his mother, he may have been biracial. He was fair-skinned. So he brought up the idea. He was like, listen, he was like, along, right now in this society, you know, when you talk to black people, they say if you got any drop of black blood in you, you know, that's, that means you're black. You know, that's that, – because we were talking about complexion and different – and racism along complexion lines or whatever, so he brought that up. I was like, okay. I mean, I've, I heard that before, yeah. He was like, but what people don't realize is that is something that was weaponized against us. He was like, when, you know, we were enslaved in this country, of course white folks wanted to keep their quote-unquote race pure. So they came up with this idea, like, if you have a single drop of black blood in you, we're going to make you – you know, you belong to that other group right there because we want to keep our stuff pure. And we kind of adopted that as our own. So now what you're seeing with this whole idea of you're a criminal, you know, it's kind of like it's a little bit of that same energy. It's like you have something in you, and I'm going to completely disregard you for the rest of your life because of who you are now, because of the person that I perceive you to be. I perceive you as having, you know, criminalistic tendencies. I perceive you as having a drop of black blood in you. Either way, I'm going to cast you aside to this group right here. You've seen a modern-day version of that same idea of casting people aside just because of something that, you know, is a part of what they've done or who they are, you know? So I, I think that – so it irritates me when people come up with this notion of, you know what, he's a criminal, so he's going to completely disregard what he says. That irritates me because in my mind, I see I see something bigger than just me being dismissed as a criminal. And I mean, I see a people with whom I identify being dis- dismissed for centuries despite the fact that we built this country. You know, that's what I see when I when I encounter that narrative. You know what I mean? So I kind of deal with I've dealt with it in the past in a way that, that may have been offensive. That may have offended people. But, I mean, I, unfortunately, you know, we've been nice too long. You know what I mean? People, progressives, especially black leftists, we've been nice too long. You know what I mean? We've been nice in a way that the people on the right aren't willing to be. They've made it obvious that they're not willing to be nice. That's the right. people who have our who don't have our best interests in mind, the people who are working in positions of power with their foot on our neck, they are not talking about being nice and being kind. We've been nice and kind too long. Maybe being offensive is a little bit we, we need a little bit of that in our life right now. You know what I mean? And and I, I'm gonna take it a step further. I don't I can't think of a single movement that has advanced black lives that didn't have that slightly offensive, slightly radical element. You know what I mean? White folks view Nat Turner as offensive, which made, you know, people like Frederick Douglass more palatable. I mean, white folks view, you know, Malcolm X as offensive, which made people like Martin Luther King more powerful. Like every every movement that I can think of, you know, the Black Panthers made the NAACP, you know, look a little less ra- radical by comparison. Every movement that has advanced black lives has had a radical element that was willing to make the more sensible, arguably more sensible moderates look better. So in this movement against mass incarceration, I'm willing to play that role. You know what I mean, if I got to push radical issues, if I got to push ideas that step on white folks' toes and make them feel offended just so they'll listen to the Tamika Mallory's of the world, just so they'll listen more to the Dan Jones's of the world, just so they'll listen more to them because those, those people aren't as radical as I am. If I got to play that role to advance my culture, to advance my cause, to advance my community and my society, so be it. You, you know what? You you hit on it, man. You, boy, we're going to have you on a lot more. Um, you know, you mentioned that Turner. Um, it, it You know, the thing, the, the militant thing, uh, it's, it's people need to understand the definition too, Tyrone. The, you know, um, if militant means that you want to take care of your folks and, you know, uh, like you mentioned, the, the, the Panther is like, okay, um, we'll just start our own schools. We'll just start our own food programs. We'll just start this and that. You know, Marcus Garvey said, look, you don't want me here? Pay for me to go back home. You know what I mean? I mean, so there there are the, the historical um you know, uh, examples out there bump the the black history stuff. Let let me ask you this real quick. 
how does it make you feel and what's your reflection on black men being killed on the streets with no record, Tyrone? No, zero record. They just going to get Skittles and whatever down the street. They just walking and yeah. looking in an empty house and getting shot by former cops. They just saying, I can't breathe. They have no records. Not zero yeah. records. Yeah, and you so if you coming out incarcerated and you worried about uh and that's a whole nother I'm not I, I won't even get extensive into the whole you know, driving while black and that whole thing, but just just being a normal citizen with no record and getting killed. Like I told a black defensive attorney, he says, Well, you know, you you do have to start you know, the, the law says you have to you know, show ID, and when you get pulled over, this I said, let me tell you something, bro. I said, you know, when we when we give them um, our identification, we get shot. We put our hands in, yeah. we get shot. Pull our hands out, we get shot. We stop, we get shot. We keep going, we get shot. We get out, we get shot. We stay in the car, we get shot. What do you want? So my point is, is how does it make you feel if if Innocent men that have never been incarcerated are getting killed. What does it make you feel for your situation coming out, doing the right thing? I mean, got this this great book, and you're helping people. Oh, how does that make you feel at this point in time in in this climate? I actually kind of feel like, um, well, honestly, I feel like what I'm doing is nowhere near enough because the problem is so massive. You know, especially when it comes to police brutality. And and the mistreatment of you know people who look like us by badge wearers, you know. So uh, I don't feel like I'm doing enough. And there were times where I got out and I was thinking like, okay, I know if if you know the police will kill you know Laquan McDonald, if they'll kill Oscar Grant, you know if they'll kill Eric Garner, if they'll you know, come on, they went in Brianna crib like and killed her in the bed. I'm like the police will do that to people who are upstanding citizens, you know, like. Come on, I, I definitely, there was a point where I was thinking, like, what would they do to me? It wasn't a fear thing. It kind of was like, a, okay, well, I need to make sure I'm I'm in a position where I can I can safeguard my well-being. You know what I mean? I'm not just talking about, you know, a physical protection. I'm talking about political protection as well, you know. it, it make, It's a big difference between, you know, being able to, uh, I guess, defend yourself when the police pull up and the police pulling up and saying, oh, you're the one that was working with the mayor. I'm sorry for disturbing you, sir. Have a nice night. You know, it's a big difference. Like I said earlier, man, you want to change the power structure, you become the power structure. So I think me stepping out into this moment right now, considering where I'm coming from, considering all of the energy from, from especially from Black Lives Matter, like considering all of that, in my mind, I'm like, you know what? It's, I, I'm just focused on becoming the power structure in any way I can, whether it's economic empowerment, political engagement, community activism. You know, I'm just trying to make sure that people who have my best interests in mind are in position to make decisions that influence people who are coming up like I did and who are living the life that I'm living. You know, so I think that, um, as far as how, you know, the police brutality and the execution of, you know, Chocolate Brothers and Sisters, you know, in public is affecting me is, is motivation, you know, is motivation. I'm coming out of a system that um, is as deeply rooted in slavery as policing is in another cell. Policing stems from, as you know, the slave patrols, you know, so this entire system, the entire carceral state is built on, you know, uh, slavery and the subjugation of black people to, you know, whites from America. So uh, with that in mind, I mean, you know what? This, this has to be motivation. You know, when I see the police getting paid administrative leave, executing a black dude, 
But at the same time, you know, a brother like me, if I mess around and, you know, accidentally get to pay for gas, then I'm doing time. Like, when I see that, oh, bro, that's fuel. That's fuel. You know what I mean? That's that's what it is. So every time I see that, I'm like, y'all don't know, man, that, like, society don't realize, like, it's, it's everybody out here ain't, ain't laying down. Some of us are willing to play chess. You know what I mean? Right now, you know, the, our oppressors are playing chess, and it seems like we still playing chess, but not all of us. I mean, some of us are willing to say, you know what, I am going to run for city council. I am going to run for zoning commission, the zoning board, school, the board of education. You know, I'm going to run for, you know, or, or play these roles in these community activist organizations. You know, I'm going to become, you know, somebody in academia. A lot of us are willing to say, you know what, we're going to make a, make a change. You know, we're going to protect ourselves by being, you know, more influential, more powerful, more successful. You know, and I hope that people who are down with the progressive agenda, you know, jump on board and say, you know what, let's push it, you know. Yeah, and you know what? I mean, I, I'm a firm believer in God um, uh, gives us all gifts. Use them. You know, we all have uh, a gifts to give to society in in a good way. We we hope, and you know, activism is 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 one of those things. And sometimes I call it you 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 framed it the way you did. Sometimes you got to strong arm some stuff, and that's what's going on in in our, our climate now, you know, because there's people trying to take back their country that they never even owned in the first place. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, we we know what that means. We know what that code is. They want to take back. And and listen, if they was back in the slavery, uh, you had they stopped you. You got to show your your papers to show you free. You ain't no runaway slave. They stopping us on the street the same way. Show your papers. The yeah. only thing is the yeah. driver's license, ID, whatever the case is, it's a different thing. Let me ask you this. We just said, folks, if you're just joining us, um, I did get a couple of questions that I want to get to you, uh, uh, Tyrone, before we get out of here. Talk with Tyrone Baker. He has a, a book out, and the book is uh, entitled uh, A Convict's Perspective, Critiquing Peniology and uh, Inmate Rehabilitation. The rehabilitation part is really strong and powerful, Tyrone. It's it not just having the suit to go to the job interview or being a black man and knowing you got kids and and wanting to um uh, uh, to to hold on to your manhood to take care of your babies or whatever, but it's a mental thing. You don't want to go it back. Is. You don't want to be incarcerated. You don't want to go back to that life. You want to do the right thing. So talk about if if it was a struggle for you after the 14 years to come back mentally like, you know, I could do this. And having the support group, which I was going back to with your mom being there, how important the support group was to keep you on that positive, that energy, that positive energy path. Yeah, yeah, that was oh man, it was um I mean I I just to to push back a little bit on I don't think um anybody necessarily kept me on the positive energy path. I, I kinda always I mean, from the moment I got incarcerated I made a decision from that moment on I was putting out positive energy regardless of who was in my life. But the people who supported me and the people who came and stood by my side, my family and loved ones, ah, uh, they made it so much more effective. They made me so much more effective. They they really compelled me to become the best version of myself that I could become, which is still an ongoing process, you know, because, I mean, I, I, they are right here by my side, you know, even to this day, you know, I, I only got out six months ago, you know, so it's been six months of me, 
living out here in the world, and I, I am still transitioning psychologically. There are moments where I think things or there are moments where a situation will happen and my mind will go to, you know, certain things that happened, you know, a little bit more than six months ago. And I'll, so there, there are moments where I'll, I'll, I still have my moments feel like that. So I'm still transitioning, you know, and I'm still kind of learning about things in society from, you know, from phones and <laughs> getting around town and stuff like that. I'm still learning about these things, you know. So I, I do think that um, it's, it's, it's a process and it's a journey. But I really want that people to know that, you know, organizations like Straight Talk Support Group, they provide a service that is very much needed. That's one of the reasons why I'm really trying to, um, you know, what they do. They're selling tickets to a fundraising event. I know you mentioned it before, but it's on March 9th at 5.30 p.m. The tickets are on sale now at uh, Straight or they're, they're available right now at Straight Talk Support Group's Facebook page, at Straight Talk Support Group. You know, so uh, just click on the link that says Transition Journey to, to get a spot. So, But one of the reasons why I'm really working with them, the, the rehabilitation part, is they also understand, you know, the, those struggles that I just mentioned, some of them. You know, they also understand how important it is to help guys, you know, get their driver's license and get a Social Security card and teach them how to fill out a job application and things that, you know, adults, regular adults have, you know. They, they understand the need of getting these guys to that point because a lot of them come out of prison, you know, prison just kicks you out. It's like, hey, all right, you're free now. I'll let you, you know. So and that's you can't you can't take somebody from that environment to the free environment and expect them to excel. You know, you can't expect everybody to excel. You know, the best people who go through that still struggle. You know, so it's like I mean, straight talk support group really understands that man. They really are are a great organization, man. I really I'm really I'm gonna try to do everything I can to to support them. You know, this, this is me giving back to my city. I'm from Durham, born and raised in Durham. I did my crime in Durham. I came home to Durham. So I called. I, I wreaked havoc in Durham, and now I'm trying to kind of like address some of the things in the past by keeping other brothers from wreaking havoc in the way that I did, you know, especially those who are just getting out of prison. They need help. I mean, and I don't want guys who are getting out to put them, their freedom back at risk because they feel like they have to. I can't I can't sit by sit back and watch that because I know how much brothers hate prison. I know for a fact, you know, they, they, they get out and a lot of our people get out and do stuff to go back. But I know for a fact there's nobody sitting in prison saying I loved it. They don't like that, you know what I mean? They don't – a lot of these brothers get out. They're not going back by choice. They're going back because they feel like they don't have an option. They feel like they don't have a viable option, a reasonable option. In their mind, I, I met another brother, uh, I think, two weeks ago, and I was, he, he was just as, just as involved. And um, he was on some stuff like, in his mind, going legit, quote-unquote legit, man, getting a, a job at McDonald's. He was like, you know, bro, I can do X, Y, and Z and make a whole lot more, and, you know, I can keep – you know, making the money that I want to make. I'm like, bro, but you, you know where you came from. He's like, bro, I'm not finna. I got a family to feed. I can't feed my family at McDonald's and such and such. So in his mind, those were the only two options. You know, going to McDonald's or you know doing you know some legally questionable stuff. You know, what I mean, so I'm like, if we we have to do something to combat that narrative, a straight talk support group is trying, and they are effectively doing so. You know, they're trying to help guys see that there are more opportunities. You know, there are different things, different avenues available, you know. So I definitely encourage all your readers to support them because rehabilitation is important for our community and our city. Um, and I do apologize for the, the delay there. Um, I was just uh, mentioning that, you know, that we know the system is 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 rigged. They demasculate us. They, you know, uh, you know, if you feel like you can't do anything, they go, well, we let him out. He's free to do what he needs to do. But if you feel like you can make more money doing dirt than doing the right thing, you might go doing the dirt and then you back to where you want. So they either going to kill you or they're going to put you back in prison. We know how that goes. They have a question real quick for you. Um, if you want to comment on that, you can. 
I mean, yeah, yeah, you you hit it on the head. That's 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 unfortunate, but that's reality. Yep, that's reality. Um, uh, I had uh, June in Durham ask, "Do you have kids? And what did you say to your kids if 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 you do have kids when you came out?" I do not have kids. Um, I'm, I can't even really imagine that conversation. You know, I don't have I don't have children, but. Wow. I mean, I, I thought about that before. Like, what would I say to my kids, you know, coming out of prison? Because they would be at least 14 years old <laughs> at the minimum. You know, so I'm like, I don't know. I don't even know how to answer that. Mm. Uh, Mike in Durham's asked, um, were you bitter at the system? And I think he's probably meaning because of the book. It did, I haven't read it, obviously, but the the title talks about, you know, the North Carolina um, imprisonment and and you and I I think the, he's heard our conversations about the double standards the um, the disproportion that goes on so I, I guess he's asking were you are you it does sound like he are you but were you bitter when you went in into this this system um when I went into the system you know I was uh, I, I wouldn't say I was bitter I don't think I was bitter um. I was more of, I was, I was, to be honest, I don't really know how to describe it, you know, because I was going through a phase that most people go through, you know, I was 19, 20, you know, going through that era where you're still becoming an adult, going through that phase where you're still becoming an adult, so I, I was going through a lot of emotions, you know, I, I was, I, I just can't explain it, you know, it's hard to really delve into, but now, you know, looking back, you know, now that I'm free, I wasn't, I'm not necessarily bitter at the system now, I just feel like I have a position to play. If my goal is to advance my culture, I got a position to play in that. Then okay, I'm that's gonna play right. that position. It's not it's not necessarily a bitterness, you know. I'm not necessarily uh one that's exactly fueled by my emotions or one that you know can't still act logically when I'm emotionally excited or whatever. I'm I'm not emotions don't mean that much to me right now. What means well, it's not a bitterness thing. It's a motivation thing. It's like you know what, this is my position. So regardless of whether I'm bitter or happy or, or regardless of what I'm feeling, my position is to make sure that my, you know, people that I identify with are, you know, their plight is improving, you know, so I, I can't really say that I'm bitter. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, you know, was, you know, it's, it's like, was Fred Hampton bitter? Was Martin Luther King, were they bitter? Was it bitterness or was it just, you know what, I just want to see my people better and I'm going to do what I can to make sure they are better. So no, I wasn't bitter and I'm not bitter. Yeah. And I, I and I can get that. The maturity I hear in you and not even knowing you that well, I'm not surprised you you wouldn't be. You just you adjust. Okay, this is what it is, and you you moving forward. Um, uh, final uh, questions for you with Straight Talk Support Group. What's your involvement? What will you be speaking about on this March day? You can give that information and how people can get um, uh, it, it, your your book and and all the information. But the the, the biggest thing is you know what's your involvement with this because i asked you before on a, a previous interview are you mentoring people what what's the, the 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 scope and landscape of what you're going to be doing on this event well at this event this event is, ba- is going to be a virtual event where um it's basically going to be me discussing excerpts from my book you know and uh, excerpts that pertain to transition and out of society there, there's going to be a time a, a period where i'm going to read you know, a few captions from a book about that issue, and um, the bulk of the interview, or the bulk of the event is going to be a panel of experts discussing the transition out of prison. There's going to be a few people who are just as involved, 
and brothers like Sean Ingram who have done time and who have gotten out and are doing great things. And there are also going to be some people working in the nonprofit space, such as, uh, you know, Demetrius Lynn. Uh, I mean, there are a few people who are who are going to be on this panel. We're just going to be talking about ways in which, you know, the transition affects people, the ways in which transition and out of prison can be done better, the ways in which, you know, it is, a, it is something that deserves society's attention. I mean, we're just going to be having that discussion. And like I said, my primary involvement is the donation of, you know, the profits from my book sales in the month of February and the month of March, you know. So in connection to this event, you know, I'm, I'm donating the profits from those book sales. Again, my, my book is called A Convious Perspective, Critiquing Penology and Inmate Rehabilitation. You know, it's on Amazon. You can go to my Facebook page at Tyrone Baker and click on the link in my bio to get it. And like I said, all the profits. And, and you mentioned a good point, man. I'm not I'm not no rich dude. I got out of prison six months ago. You know what I mean? I, I ain't, you know, I'm working a job right now. I work for Storm Tech Roofing. You know, I'm working for a roofing company. You know, I'm not a I'm not a wealthy guy. You know what I'm saying? But I feel like, you know what, I ain't gotta be wealthy for me to start making a difference. You know what I mean? Like I'm still getting public assistance. You know what I mean? I ain't no rich dude. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, you know what, me donating to these books here, you know, that's something that I mean, it is is me I'm doing what I can. You know what I'm saying? I, I wish I could do more, but you know, I'm I'm doing what I can. I'm trying to bloom where I'm planted, you know. But you know what? Um, you know, uh, again, at the risk of getting into everything, you know, I mean, being a spiritual guy like yourself, I mean, giving back like that, uh, that that takes a, a, a strong testament to you and your faith um, where you're going in your life. And you're a, a much younger man than I am uh, at being 50, almost 51. Um, keep doing what you're doing, bro. And I, I'm going to have you on more because I, I really want to promote your stuff. I'm going to, um, if I can get a copy of the book, um, that will be awesome. We want to make sure, want to make sure we post that on our website, even our, our site, and we'd be posting this interview there too. Uh, give the okay. book information too, where people can 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 find your book. The book is called A Convict's Perspective, Critiquing Penology and Inmate Rehabilitation. It's on Amazon. To make it easier for you, I put a link in my Facebook page at Tyrone Baker. Just click on the link that's in the bio, the Amazon link, and it'll take you straight to where you can buy it, you know. And um, let's try to get, you know, straight talk support groups and support. Y'all Y'all show some love. Absolutely. As a matter, of fact, what as a they matter of fact, I got, I got 10 free copies in my book right now in my hand. I'm, I'm, I'm there on my dresser right now. I'm looking at 10 free copies. You know what I mean? The, I'm going to say the next 10 people to hit me up on Facebook, ask me for a copy of my book, I'll send it to them. Give me that link. Post that, I mean, uh, push that link again, please. It's Facebook, at Tyrone Baker, and there's a link in the profile. It's an Amazon link. Just click on that link. It'll take you to where you can buy the book. But if you go on Facebook right now, at Tyrone Baker, send me a message to say, I want a copy of your book. If you send me that message right now, the next 10 people, I'm going to send them a copy of my book. Well, let's make it nine because I'm gonna get one, and then you can sign mine, <laughs> and, and uh, we'll make it nine. But uh, uh, listen, Tyrone, for real, man, in, in all sincerity, like I said, this is a a, a place that's uh, close to me. I appreciate you, man. You keep doing what you're doing. You keep your head up. You keep doing what you're doing. We love you. We appreciate you, man. You be careful. I will talk with you very soon. I'm gonna shoot your email off air. And thank you so much for coming on this evening, sir. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Appreciate you. It's the Bastion News Radio Show on the Bastion News Radio Network and WCOM.
Chapel and Carbon. I'm Bracton Booker, an assistant editor here at Tell Me More, and my black history icon is Malcolm X. In his 39 years of life, he was a hoodlum, a racist, an inmate, and a Muslim who was militant in the fight for civil rights. But that's not why I admire him. More than the any means necessary mantra that has become his enduring legacy, I love Malcolm X's willingness to eschew racism and evolve into a human rights activist. Here he is in 1964 talking to reporters about his pilgrimage to Mecca. I had close contact with Muslims whose skin would in America be classified as white and with Muslims who themselves would be classified as white in America. But these particular Muslims didn't call themselves white. They looked upon themselves as human beings, as part of the human family. Those words couldn't be more relevant today as the U.S. Homeland Security Committee considers hearings on the radicalization of the Muslim community. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us. Uh, 646-929-0130, the number to get in touch with us, Pad Nation on Facebook, Pad Nation number two, Pad Nation two, at Twitter, uh, LA Bachelor, Instagram, uh, listen on TuneIn, and of course, if you missed the rebroadcast, hit us up at the Bachelor News Radio Network.com. At the top, you see the Bachelor News Radio uh, show. Um, Page, you can hit us up there. I want to go to the phones, bring in uh, Tony T. Mac McLean from Black Athlete Sports Network, sir. Uh, appreciate your patience on the line and uh, good evening to you. How's it going? Good. Um, wanted oh, to way, ask one, you one thing before we start. Uh, sure. Brett Gardner said hello. Yeah, I know. I saw Brett Gardner. I was going to get to that I reluctantly, but I'm not surprised. If, I, Jeez, the the Yankees, so their ownership is like the Democrats at some point. Sometimes they look at the numbers and it, and and the fan base is what I'm saying in this case, and then they bring this guy back who's going to hit 240, 230, 220, and it's not going to do anything for this team. What spot he plays, pinch hit, what I I mean. Anyway, uh, come back to that. Uh, real quick, it. What do you think of uh, Kevin Mather's uh, uh, um, comments with the Mariners in the in the climate of this this cancel climate where you know everything is bad and all this bad? I'm not saying I'm not taking any side. I'm just asking you what he said in regards to uh, Japanese people and then of course. Um, the young lady who's taking over with the Marlins. What What do you think of what he said? And should he get a second chance? No, because this okay. is the second. This is the second, second, like second, third time he's done it. Number two, he's only upset. He's only sad that he got caught. He's not. A, he's not. He's not. Uh, remember, he's not um, apologizing for. You know, he's not upset. Of what he said, he was upset because he got caught. Got caught. That's the bottom, 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 the bottom line. And if you think he's the only person in Major League Baseball that thinks that 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 thinks that way, uh, you're either incredibly stupid or just incredibly naive. 
Hey, and Tony, there I would think too. It's not even a baseball thing. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pick on baseball overall on this. It is a woman thing. She's a an Asian woman that he mentioned. As a woman in their climate, it, it, these old white guys who want to control, or younger white guys with the analytics that want to control everything. That's not baseball. And they are just very racist <laughs> and very sexist. So that's not, that's not no, baseball? That's, no, no, no. What I'm saying is, come on. I mean, that is absolutely baseball. But you get you can't say that about the NFL. You can't say that about the other ones. I mean, I'm, 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 what I'm saying is, I'm not killing baseball as the only one. Is what I'm saying. This is the story, but baseball. What well, was it? A party? Like they, they, all these other sports are you know trying to do little lower level stuff with the officials and stuff but when it comes to upper management she's fighting just as bad as the Rooney rule in the NFL so i think it's really it, you know NFL might be a little more you know connected and have more um examples but we still get the the Al Campanas to a different to 2021 in all these sports in some some regard I think it's worse than baseball. I think baseball has the worst record of it because of the pretentiousness that they've always tried to put themselves up with. Yes, that's true. Football, football, basketball. Let's put it this way. Um, I see what the ladies of the WNBA do, uh, does. Uh, no, the NBA doesn't. The NBA doesn't take credit for it, but I do think with you know the female officials. I think with what you see with a lot of these. Um, female assistant coaches and with the possibility of a uh, Becky Hammond becoming a, 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 uh, a head coach at some point. Right. Um, I think you see in the NFL with, again, with other uh, female assistants, uh, female referees and what have you. And, and even now, now hockey is still a little whatever, but see baseball has all seen, Baseball, baseball, baseball is the one that stands on their, their, their pedestal. You're why, right. And see, and You're see, right. That, that's why it should be yeah. taken to task more because yeah. they have been piss poor. And 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 to the, you know, you see where the Red Sox, I guess, hired a uh, woman hitting coach, and there's a few a few other uh, uh, hires, whatever. But see, well, good luck baseball, with that. Well, but you know, in, well, in Boston. Yeah. Good luck. Well, well, it's, it's it's on the minor league level. It's on the minor league level. It's not um not 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 on the major league level. But the thing oh, is, right, right, okay. But the thing is, baseball always tries to play that holier than thou thing. So whenever this happens, cause see again, major league. See, he resigned, I guess, before they were gonna fire him. So they're so they're trying to make it out like you know he did a noble thing. No, if he was doing a noble thing, he would have kept his damn mouth shut but you know right. that that you know god you know god forbid but no it's 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 you know um uh, you know after campanus and after all these other ones whatever you know bill singer it's it's you know it's kind you know every time you think that it's like you know whatever you think that they're you know moving a little bit forward uh things go back you know things go back to whatever so so basically right now fred flintstone is the uh commissioner of baseball again you know i i had a conversation with a friend of mine who um is is a a black female who's a, a sports writer um 
And she said, you know, part of the the issue, and this is her take on it, is that, you know, um, women, uh, sports writers and people in that position, and she said in particular black, uh, should speak out more. And she mentioned Jamel Hill. She mentioned Susan. I'm not Susan Page. What's the other one from um, good guy from USA Today? Uh, not Susan Page, she's political. But you, you, my point is, is that she had brought up, uh, and I can't think of the, the woman name now. Um, mm-hmm. But she brought up a bunch of uh, 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 situations and and scenarios where, if women in that have had the the, the cracks, and that we mean cracks, that can get in, right, and mm-hmm. and and have a, a voice. That if they speak out more, then maybe it's it's not as bad. But my point was that it's you know we still trying to get Tony and I uh, to be able to have a, a, a supreme voice. Number one, then number two, um, this issue. I don't know Tony is if it's a a woman issue or a a uh, Oriental issue or whatever the case may be, it's, it's, it's on a multi. It's a multi. It's, 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 it's a bunch of things. It's a bunch right, of things. right, it's, right. It's, it's so just, I can't, I can't just, put you know, it on a woman's well, voice it, on this it, one. Not on this, this way. It's, 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 it's the continuation of of the Million Dollar White Boys Club, for lack of a better word. And see, that's, that's really I, it. At the end of the day, yeah, that's where it yeah, is. at the end of the day. My my feeling has always been with analytics. I think analytics is is another way, is another vehicle that they use to uh, to keep to keep no 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 to to keep my to keep blacks, women's, Hispanics out. I always use the example of Willie Randolph not getting that second chance. I use Bo Porter is the ultimate advantage. You know he had to. He had to sit through those three years where Houston, for lack of a better word, tanked. And he deserves just as much a credit for that championship that they won or allegedly, you know, or allegedly won. We can, that's another conversation in and of itself as well. But right, right. he deserves just as much of a credit for that as um, – forget, forget, I can't think of the guy's name right now – as the manager that was there. And eventually got right. uh, exiled with the thing. But see, and even now, people are still, uh, you know, people are still pissing on the Astros, even with the Dusty Baker there. Now, you know, and again, this is another argument or whatever. But, but, but let me just be real quick with it in the sense of, if the cheating was so bad, how come they still made the playoffs last year with another, um, with another manager, probably with a better manager. That's what, but that's what, again, that's a whole separate argument from that. But if you get back to point, baseball, you know, they can, they can, you know, they can have everybody in their mama wear 42 on the 15th. They can acknowledge the Negro leagues and all that. They can have forums and everything like that. But the problem, they still look at non-whites as subservience to the sport. And all this, right. all this incident did is just reinforce that more than anything else. I know in certain areas that they've made strides, but at the end of the day, baseball always seems to find a way 
to mess this up. And this was just an, this is just another uh, part of chapter and verse with this, plain and simple. Right, and and you uh, to your point, the 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 fact is that they're going to bring up the um, uh, um, uh, dialect and and the distortion and the the. Uh, it, it just really doesn't. It's like the worst thing you could ever done well, it, in terms not, of just. It, it just it doesn't make any what, sense. To me, but but, but what's but but I don't know what what did what did baseball do about this? I know the Mariners well, no, and they quit, separated well, themselves. He basically quit before they were going to fire him. And I think and, and, right. And, and, but what is baseball going to do after nothing, this with a guy nothing, like this? Nothing. 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 Okay. Basically, the Mariners. First way, they may, they may heal. But I think what they're going to do is they're going to be like, oh, they they handled it themselves. Okay, that's cool. But see, here's the thing. Um, yeah, but see, but see, here's the thing. The the fact that he that 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 he was getting his panties all out of because of his interpreter. See, my thing is, look. You want these guys' talent. You want, you know, you, you know, you want to get you know, right. the players. You want to get the Japanese players. But that's right. But see, think of how naive that whole scenario is in his mind. Oh, well, we got to pay an interpreter. We got to. Well, that goes. See, it's about um, basic um, work relationships. You know, I mean, teams have academies. Where you know the Dodgers had an academy, opened an academy a few years ago, where it's all year round with players. They 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 try to they assimilate them with um, the sport, but most importantly, they try to teach them English. They you know teach them social issues and what have you. Now, the thing is, you want these guys to excel for you, but. You're not willing to go the long way for them. And on top of that, if those guys fail because of your ignorance and your, um, and, and, and your indifference with them, then you'll be like, well, this guy couldn't cut it. Maybe it's y'all couldn't cut it because you weren't willing to go the extra mile for them. Because, see, respect, as people seem to always forget, respect's a two-way street. And that's right. baseball and a lot of these sports over the years have been jaywalking. They want the yep. talent, but they don't want to do the work to help cultivate that talent. They literally just want, you know, it's no different from the days of the Negro Leagues in the sense of, you know, when they realize that, well, we need to go get them. Now, and remember, they didn't compensate. You know, a lot of those teams did not get compensated financially in regards to them, you know, basically raiding their rosters. Now, what's very interesting is with the Japanese leagues and the Chinese and, and, and other leagues, you know, uh, from the Far East, basically, you know, their rosters got raided back in the day. But see, what they've done subsequently is they said, Oh no! You got to pay so much and such if you just want to talk to them. So now, see the thing. So, so their whole thing is, if you're going to make the commitment, it's going to be a hundred percent of a commitment, not just oh we're going to get the guy and then you know he'll have to fend for himself. There's, it's a it's a line. There's a you know to to sort of get an idea at least to me. There's an old 
there's a there's a funny line from the, from the Simpsons when um, Lisa and uh, Bart are saying, "Well, Dad, you know we're used to your half-ass parenting," and then Homer says, "Well, well, well I'm using my whole ass now," and see, <laughs> that's and see that's the point. Major League Baseball, with all of its whatever, they still don't want to. They still don't want to push the whole thing. They want the talent. That- they want the whatever, but they're not willing to do the dirty work that goes along with it. And this, and so see, my, and this, and this, and this, and this is just another example of that. And see, remember, this was a team. Remember, it wasn't that long ago that remember Mitsubishi. Uh, uh, um, what was the uh, oh the, the video the video uh, company from overseas owned this right not that long ago. <laughs> And oh, by the way, who was their most identifiable player? Some guy named Ichiro. Ichiro, which which um, Kevin Matt, uh, Mathers uh, made fun of. Uh, I, I, Mike and in, in Michigan asked. Um, I don't know what side he's on. He asked to you, Tony, if if Kevin had, if this was his first comments, would you be getting rid of him? Yes. Okay. But it's not. See, but see, it's immaterial. It's not his first comments. And see, that's right. the problem. See, that's the problem. Everyone's willing to dismiss it. Every, everyone's willing to try to find a way to dismiss it, as opposed to dealing with the problem. Because see, here's the thing. Everyone, you know, when well, Al Campana showed himself, everybody was like, but the problem was still there. And see, that's the problem. Every time right. you try to dismiss the thing, the problem doesn't get solved. It's That's like, right. It's, 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 like, it's like what Ron Holder said back in the day. Everybody's mm-hmm. a coward because no one wants to up, talk about racism up front. Everyone wants up to push front. it to the side. At some point, you have to deal with the MF. And that's the problem, whether it's sports, whether it's politics, whether it's uh, anything else. Everyone wants to push it to the side and kick, you know, kick the can down the road. You can't do that, and that's why we're in. That's why you got white people telling you that they want to take their country back. Right. And you know, T. You know, to to the point. He. It. I mean, it's sort of off the side, and maybe you agree with me or not. Is that he? You know, this dude sounded like he was complaining. That, and that's what they do. Oh, he wasn't. You know. That, that's it. Japanese people, you know, coming over here. Mm-hmm. What what do you what's the problem? What are you complaining LA? about? We're giving you this. LA? LA, he was a whining little bitch. Let's just call it yep. what it is. And see That's right. here's the thing. Now see, again, his comments got out. You know there are other people of Bigger power than him that are saying, and, and that same attitude, the attitude is still there. See, that's see, and that's remember when he said it, too, by the way, in the, yeah, in the country. Because he felt like, well, no, because yep. he, he, he felt comfortable enough. Because, see, that's the whole that's thing right. now. Everybody's yep. very comfortable with their racism now. Yep. Everybody's yep. comfortable with their racism now. So now it's what so so basically again, this is why things don't get taught because people allow this to fester, 
people and 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 then and then when it does come out, we're supposed to you know all of a sudden well we need to exempt no, let him lose his job and then let him do the under let him do the understanding because see, all the folks who have been victims of this whether it be black whether it be Hispanic whether it be um, Japanese or Chinese we're always left to fend for ourselves. This is one instance where the person, where the, the punishment truly fits the crime. If it's bothering you that much, maybe you don't need, maybe you don't need to be here. Maybe we need to have somebody here that's going to be a little bit more, um, that, that, that really is going to be a little bit, that, that's going to really care more about the people who he's paying to work for him. In concept. Right, and 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 Jennifer had had said that sometimes we go too far with the cancel culture, um, but I I have to disagree. I mean, it really it you can't see you can't it, you know the the, the you know um, free freedom of speech is one thing, but you can't go into a middle of a movie theater and 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 yell fire. It, there's consequences to what you say, look, 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 and in look, this culture, everybody. when he said that. He mm-hmm. gotta get. He gotta go. He gotta everybody, go. Everybody, every everybody wants to talk freedom of speech when their right. ass is in the fling. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he's you know, all of a sudden, he's Patrick Henry. Give me liberty or give me or give me death. Well, we ain't gonna kill you, but we, but you ain't gonna, but look, but but you ain't gonna be taking another. You, you ain't gonna be. We're not gonna be signing any more of your paychecks. Cause see, cause cause again. I, at the end of the day, he—I mean—he literally was whining about his workers. He was literally right. whining about That's the right. people who he's supposed to That's take right. care of. And again, That's I'm right. not saying he's got to kiss their ass or what. But see, here's the thing: if you're so opposed to, because see, if you're so opposed to all of that, why'd you sign them? Exactly. Because see, because see, it's a two-way. Because see, you can't be like, well, you're an asset. But we really don't want to take care of you all the way. And so, 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 well, he, so again, sound, he sounded. Go ahead. No, it's just, but see, the sad thing is the racism part almost, almost is, is, is secondary. But see, end of the day, he doesn't want to help. He doesn't want to. He, he wants. He, it's like a lot of these companies, they want to, you know. They want to. They want to have these million-dollar companies, but they only want to spend twenty cents or so to 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 you know. They want to spend as little as possible to uh, cultivate the whole thing, and that and and and, and 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 then when you throw in the racial angle, it just it, you know again it it it. I mean, look what he's basically you know in in many I mean. He may have just come right out and said, you know, these guys are taking good jobs from good white ball players who we would who we could rather cultivate. I mean, in in, in, in so many words, you know, the code, like they, you know, you know, we always talk about. You were talking about with the previous guest, everything in code. We know. We look. We know exactly what he was saying here. And the, and again, he's not a, he's he's not sad of what he said. He's sad that it got out. Cause see, got in that million, because in that million dollar boys and girls club. The biggest thing is what's said here, what's done here, stays here. See, 
And 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 again, real quick, Tony. Let me do one thing. Now, just put you got a question. Somebody ask you a question. Go ahead. Okay. It's, let me just put this in a historical uh, light. Marge Shots, when she talked about her quote-unquote million-dollar niggas, you know, her whole thing was, you know, it's okay to say that at the, um, at the owners' meetings or whatever, but when you say it publicly, we got to denounce you. And see, it's, it's not even so much to denounce you. It's like you let our secret out, so we got to let you go. Right. Um, Terry and and Nelson, I don't know where Nelson is, asked, um, do you think the cancel culture with this and these type of situations will help or hurt uh black ball players? They don't acknowledge the black ball players Good anyway. Questions. So I so I would say it's 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 sadly it's not a factor. But see, here's the thing. The mentality of that is still there. Maybe not the, you know, the interpreting or, or, or what have you. But see, look, in many eyes, in, in, in many eyes, they've already, in a sense, canceled culture because they don't really acknowledge. Black. I mean, they do, like I said, a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, posturing and, and what have you. But. The sad thing is Because this dude get, He's going to get another job He's going to oh, get another he job will. In my he'll, opinion He'll, he'll yeah. get it, He'll get it, You sure. know He'll do his penance You know They'll have him do what, well, What's What's uh, What's what's Analyst He'll be analyst Or something no, no, like no, that no, 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 no I'm saying They'll have him do Like racial whatever, You know They'll have him You know They'll have him You know I, you know, Right they'll, they'll, you, know, uh, you know They'll do They'll do Sensitivity some, 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 some training And all that Right exactly. Right that and then and then and then he'll be back again and he'll go after the same very same people again. But see, that see, but see, are they going to have the conversation? Because see, at the end of the day, if you don't have the brains or the balls to have the conversation, it doesn't matter what kind of sensitivity training you're going to have. Because see, it's an attitude. It's an attitude. Right. It's prevailed from mm. the day of the gentleman's agreement till now. That hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. You know, they can do all the studies and all this, whatever, but at the end of the day, it's the attitude. It's your actions. Your actions are always going to speak louder than your words. Right. And the fact, and, and, and the fact that, that this guy literally was a, you know, and, and, you know, was a whining little bitch about this. <laughs> I think it's, it speaks volume. It speaks volumes. It really does. It speaks volumes about what the sport uh, thinks. uh, What the sport thinks, because again, if you are naive enough to think that he is the only person in a high position in baseball that doesn't think that that thinks that way, then 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 you haven't been paying attention. And so, with with what Terry said, um, T. In wherever they were, I didn't get the email. Uh, what's the optimism, if if any, in terms of change when it comes to this cancel uh, culture? With with if he if everybody's guys like him and look like him and act like him and speak like him, gonna get their job back? Uh, is it anything going to change? He he asked. No, no absolutely not. Wow. wow. All you gotta do is look, all you gotta do is look at the history. Yeah. The history. I mean, you know, I, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, 
poo-poo on these folks' comments, but if you haven't, if you don't know your history, you're destined to repeat it. Yeah. And and they yep. and and see, these incidents don't just come out of nowhere. These incidents don't just come out of nowhere. They've been festered, and, you, and they've been and they, and they've been fine tuned over the years. It's just that in other, you know, in mo- in most instances, they've always been able to sort of keep it under wraps. But see, now folks are so blatant and so they feel more comfortable with their racism now that stuff like this, quote unquote, slips out. And you know, two T, just to your point. Um, racism is not a regional thing I don't know where Kevin's from But I know where he was A GM at And that's a progressive area But we've seen stuff like So it's not even that Like it can be anywhere and any person Doesn't mean that That person has to be from Georgia and, and, And manage in Connecticut Or the opposite It's just an agenda Like you said And um, it, it really uh, L- doesn't L- matter. This, I don't L- even know where he's from. I just know he, 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 he he's a GM in Seattle, Seattle, uh, uh, Washington. L- LA. LA. The only difference between Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Philadelphia, Mississippi, is seven hundred something miles. Okay. And people don't understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's you yeah. know it's it's see and see. This is something that you know. Whenever you're in, you know, when when you've been a minority or you've been one of few, um, you know, it's not something you get used to. But quite honestly, it's something you you figured after all these damn years, we still wouldn't have to deal with. But you know, here we are again. But this will get, but again, nope. because it's, but because it's Seattle. And it's not like a quote unquote big city or whatever. It'll blow over, and then and then the next day it'll be and then the next day it'll be you know, um, you know, talking about uh, Tatis's contract, you know, right? Which other, comes up and, other, and or what some or what some and, other uh, whatever thing. And, and by the way, real quick, um, Cherry with an I, so she's a she, she's a female, said that um, she's actually. Um, someone who uh, was a Karen, and we know the Karen. She said she went through some stuff, and she apologized for that. She was misunderstood, and she didn't understand, and she apologized. She said, "What can she do to make things better?" Because she's a big sports fan. She she got a big old Cubs thing up there, so I guess she's a big Cubs fan. But I don't know how to respond to that. T. I mean, she went through something that hasn't. Uh- Little education you know what? or what? whatever. You know what? um, keep learning. Cubs fan. Keep learning. Yeah. No, no. Hey, there are worse things in life than that are being a Cubs fan. You could be a Yankee fan. <laughs> oh. Okay. That's a cheap shot. No, no, no. That's my a cheap shot. shot. My, my, my cheap shots are usually right. Uh, my my cheap shots are usually right there in uh, in public. So no, I, I don't I don't feel the need to cheap shot. Listen, she wanted some real advice from you, not to be, not because she, but she's not a Yankee fan. That was a, I felt that in the groin when I hit me. 
No, 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 All no, no. That was, you know what? That was that was just your that that was just your buddy, Mr. Gardner. You know, saying hello. No, I I got something else that comes out <laughs> another area for for Mr. Gardner. I mean, you said that. I didn't even know how to respond, T. Really, I mean, I I mean, I knew they were gonna do something stupid like that. That's why I said. I mean, the more things change, the more the stays the same. They but brought him back because these, the these white fans. Hey, Joey from Brooklyn, you know, Joey from the you know, Bronx, want him, and I don't you know want him. End of the day, you know what? End of the day, it's small potatoes. The only people, the only people who are up, the only people who are really upset are the are the the guys who are the dugout attendants. Okay, but when it comes down, if we make the playoffs and we we pinch hit with him, I mean, well, yeah, look, it's hey, a big hey, deal. It's a big hey, look, deal. Look, 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 bro. I got, I got bigger problems. You know, I got, I got bigger problems. I got to worry about whether Seth Lugo is going to start uh, this season or not, okay? So, Brett, Brett well, Gardner. You got Lindor. Gardner, you got Lindor Gardner, and we don't. Brett Gardner is Brett Gardner, small potatoes as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, potatoes, but they're going to put a little gravy on them to make sure he's nice mm-hmm. and covered. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Stewed gravy on top of that. Oh, my God. Oh jeez! You just when I saw that you just. Uh, by the way, you messed up my day. By the way, I just want to let you know you hey, messed up my I'm day when I started. What I, it's what I do. It's what I do. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yankee related. Hey, could Man, be anyway, could be worse. Could be worse. I could make you drive all the way to uh, Richmond and back again. Oh Lord Jesus. No, we don't want to do that. Any of that, and then and uh, actually, what we did was Norfolk State was even further. But anyway, still, uh, T, I appreciate you, love you, man. I'll talk to you in a few minutes. Be on a uh, call, man. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, oh, actually, there's no call tonight. Oh, no call. Okay. No, no call tonight. Okay. We'll be back get, next week. Yeah. Get to eat. And... I can actually, I can actually watch Black Lightning in peace tonight. Right, and eat and be merry. Thank you, man. Appreciate you. Well, half of that at least. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, geez. Goodbye. Take care, man. (laughs) man, Tony T. Bank with Queen. Missy, the part of the broadcast, make sure you go on our website, the Bastion News Radio uh, show on the Bastion News Radio Network, WCRM in Chapel Hill and and Carborough. Uh, hit us up on uh, Facebook at Pat Nation, Pat Nation 2, and that's the number to a Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram at LA Bachelor. Hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. Enjoy. We'll talk to you very soon on the Bass News Radio Show, Bass News Radio Network, WCOM, Chaparral.
and good evening, and welcome to another edition of the Ambassador News Radio Show on the Ambassador News Radio Network. We thank you for joining us wherever you are. We appreciate you checking in with us uh, today. 646 929 0130, the number to get in touch with us. Press 1 to get on the line. Uh, you have um, any questions or comments, hit us up there. You can also uh, hit us up at uh, Facebook at Pad Nation. And on uh, Twitter, Pad Nation 2. And, of course, uh, you can definitely hit us up at uh, labachelor40 at gmail.com, labachelor40 at gmail.com, and Instagram at labachelor40. I want to bring in my guest. Always good to have him on. He is the senior pastor of Maximum Family Life Worship Center in Greensboro, North Carolina. Of course, you, it airs every Saturday. Their cafe broadcast on Saturdays from 5 to 6 p.m. He is Pastor Omar Rojas. And, Pastor, I appreciate you coming on. God bless. I hope all is well with you, sir. All is definitely well over here. I hope all is well with you. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And thanks for coming on. Uh, I wanted to, uh, every now and then we have these, uh, well, now and then, of course, uh, in, in our own personal uh, time, um, we think about these things, but um, as it relates to conversations, things that uh, not just make people think you would hope, uh, especially in what you do, that they think in a study. Um, so we have these conversations uh, from time to time as it relates to um, the word. Uh, and the question for you tonight, and the question I put out there in social media uh, to those who wanted to um, comment on this, is what does the Bible say about justice? And the, the, I think the, the more important reason why I wanted to ask you and have you on, Pastor, uh, outside of the fact that you're knowledgeable um, and forthright and you keep it on the word, but you're very practical in how you um, explain things, is that we're in this climate of hate, and divide. I won't even say, uh, Pastor, people that look like you and I, I can't even say criminal justice system. I say, for me, criminal system. I don't see a lot of justice for folks that look like us. So people are hurting. People are angry. They're upset. So what can you say, aside from the scriptures, what what would you say uh, the Bible says or where they can uh, lean on and count on as it relates to justice and this this climate, right? Yeah, it's uh, we are, are definitely in some uh, <laughs> special times, um, if that's even the proper term to use um, to describe, you know, the I guess the the time or even the climate that we're living in at this particular moment, and um, you know, it is challenging being a a man of color. A really, really special time. Right? It's, it's kind, of, kind of hard to get away from that particular word today uh, or this evening, but um, it, it, it is very, very uh, challenging to, you know, I guess believe in, in, in the justice system or just that word in general, justice. Uh, I think a lot of it comes down to, uh, and this is the hard part, is you know, from, from a, a believer standpoint, Mm-hmm. Trusting God, you know, trusting that that um, that you know that His word is true, and, and you know His, his promises are 
are true and that, you know, as, as the scripture would say, you know, that you know, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord, we say it often, you know, uh, but, you know, you know, many times we, we, you know, seek our own justice, you know, and so it's almost, you know, it's, it's really to the place and to the point where we really have to get a good definition of what, you know, uh, Justice is, or, or the type of justice or, or vengeance that that the Bible talks about. Because, like, you know, a lot of times we just we want people to hurt like we hurt, and that's what justice is supposed to be, and that's not. It's absolutely not true. You know, and, and you you bring it up a little bit. Uh, um, I just wanted to let you know that too. Um, it, it, how do you talk to your congregation? How do you talk to believers? And even well, we'll get to non-believers. But how do you talk to believers um, that not only are frustrated with everything, and and keep in mind, you know, people who are practicing social distancing and and staying at home and doing all those things, it's already a, a, a tough uh, and 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 very uh, timid situation where it you know people are ready to explode because they've been locked up inside the house and doing all these things with the mask and everything else right. but when you have other uh spiritual leaders if you have other pastors you have other people who are leading congregations who want you to play politics maybe not necessarily get involved we'll get to that but but you know play politics based on near political beliefs. So if you're a conservative pastor, you know, maybe you're telling people, well, this is why we need four more years of the guy occupying the White House. <laughs> or if you're a Democrat, you're saying, well, this is why we need Joe Biden. So how do you get around people like that that are um, maybe hearing that from either uh, Christian believers or even the person who's leading their their church, their congregation? <laughs> You know, that's a really, really great question um, because, you know, we, uh, I probably run into it, you know, daily because, of course, I, I, I do work a, a regular job. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, they know I'm a pastor and uh, you want to know where I stand. And you have, as you said, you have your conservative Christians and you have your uh, uh, liberal Christians, uh, if, if you will. Um and so a lot of people want to know where, you know, where I stand. And uh, I, I try to keep it real general and uh, <laughs> um, and, and, not, <laughs> and not try to fall on, on, on any side of the fence per se, um, you know, in that, you know, I, I just, you know, for me, I just want to be led. You know, however God, you know, leads me, you know, um, to to vote or, or, or even to believe, and that's that's the way we're going to go. Um, I'm always going to use, you know, for me personally, I'm always going to use, um, you know, the, you know, the Bible or the Word of God to, to, to you know, make really any decision that I make. Um, and um, so, you know, as I'm kind of skating now, it, it is challenging um, to 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 get around that because people want, you know, especially in this time that we're in now, people want definitive lines, um, and um, you know, we can we can draw definitive lines without being you know without being biased as well. So, you know, we just gotta you know, for me personally, just gotta you know really be really really mindful. You know, and 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 while I may you know think 
or believe the way that I believe, I still have to keep in mind that, you know, other people have their own way of thinking and their own way of believing. Um, and they're not wrong for the way that they, they believe or the way that they think. They, you know, as, as we would say, you know, we're, all, we're, we're a product of our, of our environment, you know, and so right. you know, all of our, all of our, um, you know, belief systems are impacted by the same things, but we've all gone through, through different things, you know, you know, we all had different experiences. So, um, we draw, you know, our beliefs from there. And so, um, you know, it's really just a matter of, of being open-minded, you know, and not, you know, as they would say, uh, you know, judging people for the way that they believe. You know, it's, it's simply just a reflection of their experience. Just join, joining us, we're talking with Pastor Omar Rojas uh, here on the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, WCOM, in uh, Chapel Hill, Carville, North Carolina. And, of course, the uh, his show, Maximizing Maximum uh, uh, Family Life Cafe, airs every uh, Saturday. 5 p.m. Eastern time here on the Bastion News Radio uh, Network. You know, Pastor, getting to, you know, listen, I I clearly clearly don't know as much as you, obviously, um, but just in doing some reading and and research on this topic, it it seems as though, right, that the, the Lord does love justice. It says it in Psalm 33, 5. It says it in in Revelation. 